Hi everyone and welcome back to A Drop in the Bucket. This is a podcast about mental well-being where we use the analogy of a stress bucket to think about what affects our mental health and what helps us to cope and feel well. We are a primary school teacher and a clinical psychologist who love talking to people about their experiences and we want to share these conversations with you. Hello Sarah. Hey Becca, how are you doing? Oh I am good, 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 good this morning. Um, I'm just going to get straight into it. Nancy. Oh Oh my my gosh. (laughs) I honestly, I love her. I just love her. Yeah. Nancy, if you're listening back to this, you've got two new best friends. Oh, I honestly could have spoken to her for hours, hours and hours and hours. We haven't done a podcast that's six hours long, but we honestly could have. Yeah. And so Nancy is a clinical psychologist. I think we realised she was the first clinical psychologist we've had on as a guest. So it was nice for me to have a a colleague because you've had a few. I was going to say we should start balancing the scales a little bit on the number of teachers I've brought on. Yeah, but the main thing, the, the where I found her on social media um, and asked her to come on was um, really talking about her anti-racism work. And it, our brains were hurting, but in a good way by the end of this, weren't they? Like every time, um, every time I delve into this, it's really eye-opening. And she was just so encouraging with it I think as well like I went away from it like like I said feeling like my brain hurt like I had an awful lot to be thinking about but that I also um felt quite empowered with it I suppose and encouraged and I think um I think I said in the podcast but I felt like you know after you eat like a really good meal and you feel so full that you feel a bit like oh but also what a good meal it (laughs) felt like that like it felt like I'd been fed really well and I was a little bit like exhausted from it but it was such good information and she's just the way she speaks about things she has such grace I think for um for the world that is that is is hard work for a lot of people and um and actually yeah real grace and kind of helping people to think about things and learn and just change their perspective particularly in their practice um as clinical psychologists and it was just also just really nice to get to know her as a person and hear a bit about her journey and um kind of what led her to psychology um and particularly to have um such a passion about changing practice um around so uh, really around equality I think you know it's not I know a lot of what she does is around anti-racism but she talked a lot about anti-bias and all and you know kind of getting to know people's identity yeah and I think we were just so grateful to her weren't we for for coming on and and giving us all this information um giving us all of this because as we say as Nancy says in the podcast it's exhausting actually the the people who generally end up doing the work and being the activists and doing the advocating and raising awareness are the people who are most affected mm. by inequality by racism and by by injustice really and that must be that must be so exhausting I keep saying that must be so exhausting it doesn't feel like enough um but I just hugely appreciate that this is a, a work that she does that she she genuinely loves mm. and that she has so much fire for and I just, yeah, I was just so grateful. Um, and I think it's an area, it's just, I find it so difficult to talk about. I if you're listening, guys, 
um, and you've heard other podcasts, I'm gen- generally a little bit more eloquent, I think, on podcasts than I was on this one. And I think my brain it just starts to slow down and stop a little bit, which is probably a good thing for me to be really aware that it's not something that I feel like an expert in. It's not something I am an expert in at all. And not that the whole point of this podcast is that even though I am a clinical psychologist, I'm by no means an, a, an expert in everybody's mental health. And different people come on this podcast and they talk about their experiences and they are the expert in those experiences, not me. I'm here as a as an interested person and a facilitator for that. But I was just really aware during this that there is so much I don't know. But I also think that that's a really good place to be. <laughs> um, and, and I think Nancy says something about that, that you know, the, the willingness to learn from that is, is a positive. So I'm sorry if I'm a bit extra waffly. Um, although pr- people probably won't notice anything that I say at all it'll just be blah 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 in between the gems that Nancy gives I was gonna say I think frankly we're background noise at this point because yeah. everything <laughs> she has to say is just fantastic um I'm quite looking forward to doing I'm actually really looking forward to doing like the Wednesday wisdom thing like posts that we do on Instagram for um her because I, there's like you said there's just some real gems in there of what she says so. yeah there aren't enough Wednesdays in the month for this right <laughs> But you can always go to her Instagram instead. So, you know. Yes, and do, and do, 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 do. Um, the art of being underscore well on Instagram. Go find it. But yeah, let's go hear from Nancy. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We start with your icebreaker questions. So, first of all, if you could spend a day in somebody else's shoes, who would it be? Hands down, my two year old daughter. She is living her best life and it really hit me that actually she embodies the kind of way I want to 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 be when I used to get really fussed about trying to find the best venue to take her to make her interested etc and one day I was super tired I was like let's just go to the park and seeing that she had the same level of excitement closing her eyes with a stick in her hand with the wind blowing and just felt like she was just enjoying it I was like that's that's that would be amazing irrespective of where you are you don't have to pay for the best place it doesn't have to be set up in a certain way you just enjoy everything and she's fantastic at congratulating herself she'll be like you did it I did it like (laughs) I just yeah that to me is a fantastic way to be so if I could embody that for for 24 hours and beyond for sure it'll be her yeah I love that me and Sarah both agree that we would be children young children as well it's just yeah and I think I don't know whether you found this but when we first went into lockdown my mum brain just completely panicked I was like oh my gosh I don't know what I'm going to do I don't know how I am going to stay entertained the whole day I don't know how my son is going to stay entertained the whole day and then Mm. it's been okay I think for the little ones we've realized how much joy they can get out of such simple things and how much they love just having family around which undistract when i say undistracted you still kind of had to work but this idea where mommy and daddy are home oh my goodness like was able to kind of see the joy and even the, the, the things that we might have anticipated would have been more stressful so yeah i definitely agree with that and if you could have any superpower what would it be I would love to be able to travel just like at a snap of my fingers. If I could be sitting on the beach somewhere in the Maldives right now, 
Yeah. <laughs> You'd be hearing the sea behind me, everything. It's just a, no borders, no passport, no, no, nothing. Just an ability kind of to travel everywhere and to experience different cultures, the ways that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, d- different aspects of nature. In fact, if, we, if I could even go back in time as well with that, and go and see the seven wonders of the world in their original untainted formats I'd, I'd so be there so you want to be doctor who really i've never actually watched doctor who but i'll take your word for it Tra- travel in space and in time oh okay yeah Sounds like i need to tune into that <laughs> i'm not a big doctor who person either so no. <laughs> i am such a home person i don't i don't do a lot of travel it's never been but through covid i've been like i just want to go somewhere anywhere i just want to go and travel and see places and do things Mm. like i think i just took it too much for granted Mm. whereas now i was heard i've been asking people if they could have three wishes what would they wish for and i heard someone's answer the day where they said i just wish i could travel for free Mm. and i was like that's such a good wish like Mm. bus trains airplanes just cars everything i was like that would be amazing because that's obviously yeah. an restriction sometimes. But this superpower would be perfect for you because to be anywhere, but then also to be able to get home at the snap of your yeah. fingers, like that's that's the way around you would want it, isn't it? That is true. It would ease a lot of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea though, Nancy, that you said you'd be hearing the sea in the background, that if you were sat on a beach in the Maldives right now, you would still be doing our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely would. It's just that it would be with like, you know, some 30 degree sunshine hitting my skin in addition to like the sea around me. It would just be a different backdrop. Yeah, I feel honoured. But it doesn't quite work the same. <laughs> cool. And Nancy, what is your favourite thing about your job? I love that I get to see people be brave. Brave to really share stories about their life that either have been really difficult to name or acknowledge um or that you just as a clinical psychologist just have the privilege to be able to kind of support somebody to take those steps to make changes but it it's acknowledging that there's a level of bravery that in some ways we're socialized not to do Mm. um it's interesting because I was thinking about how much as as parents we tell our children don't talk to strangers don't talk to strangers and then someone goes into therapy and you're like talk to this stranger it's the complete opposite of what we're conditioned to do so I have a real respect for people who are willing to be brave enough in order to help navigate real challenges. So I just find that a complete honor. Um, and I just, I, I love that to, to be trusted in that capacity. Yeah, it's amazing, is it? Because we've talked about this on other episodes before with people who've been in therapy. The fact that you generally, you don't choose your therapist. Mm. Or if you do, if you're doing it privately, then you still don't know an awful lot about that person before you decide that that's who you're going to have those really mm-hmm. deep conversations with so yeah it must be particularly odd for children mm. yeah although I think sometimes children are more trusting than anybody as in you know because actually they just really open to people and relationships they don't have the filter of the world telling them don't trust people that's um true. I've, I, I've had to prove myself to a lot of teenagers. Uh, <laughs> I mean, teenagers are slightly different. I'm talking like kids, like kids, kids. They just think I walk on water in my class. I cheered for me the other day because I got a hoop down out of a tree. I mean, I, that's I, pretty I'm, impressive. I'm not, I'm not even joking. One of them genuinely, with, with no jokes, looked at me and went, Miss Bromley, you're a hero. Oh. <laughs> I was like, well, 
I can get hoops down of trees anytime. And that is the best thing about Sarah's job. <laughs> right, should we do your quick five? Here we go. Uh, bath or shower? Um, shower. Night in or night out? Night in. Paper book or e-reader? Ah, oh, it's paper book, but I can't wait for the delivery time. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, city break or beach holiday? Beach holiday. Coke or Pepsi? Neither. Joe, we've had that quite a lot with this question. Some people, I, I think with Coke or Pepsi, that question, people either have a really strong opinion one way or the other, or just go, nah, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't drink Coke or Pepsi. I don't. If you said like uh, 7-Up or whatever the equivalent is of 7-Up, like 7-Up and Lemonade or something like that, then yeah, I would have yeah. felt more 7-Up. But... So Coke or Pepsi, 7-Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Oh, well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your experiences of mental health? Yeah. So um, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm especially passionate around working in supporting anti-racist and anti-discriminatory practices um, as a therapist and just in terms of working with people. And by that, I just mean creating spaces where people feel they have permission to bring their full identities, that it doesn't have to be filtered or muted or paused to fit into a box. And um, so I do a lot of work around how therapists can try to acknowledge that this is easier for some people than others. And some aspects of our identity might feel more difficult to bring in. And so how do we cultivate or create a space that allows people to say, oh, I can talk about that here. I didn't know that. It very much makes me think about, for example, if you go to your GP, you may have a, a very, uh, an idea around what a G, what you could speak to your GP about, but actually would you anticipate your GP would say, how has this impacted your relationship with God, for example? Probably not, but what that could open up for you is how it may have um, resulted in a, a lost sense of hope, hopelessness and how that might feed into low mood and all those other aspects. So, um, that's my mission in terms of um, trying to be a, uh, a, a clinical psychologist who is holistic. And by, that's my definition of holistic, thinking about your soul, mind, body, community. Yeah, it's a much broader definition of what well-being is, mm. isn't it, actually? Yeah. Mm. Gosh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, when I think about all the things that I have to ask somebody or want to ask somebody in like an initial assessment mm-hmm. um, and inevitably when I'm then writing that up I always see things I'm like oh I didn't ask about that because it's so hard to get to touch on all of those things isn't it um, so what are some of the sorry I'm gonna ask what are some of the really practical ways that you try and do that like when you first see people when you are trying to get like so much information and there is so much there is a big risk isn't there of um lots of different aspects of your identity being being missed I suppose yeah so in terms of what I found helpful is to first name it to name that it's the first session it probably never feels enough to kind of put this into like an episode of this is your life and so acknowledging that as we grow together we learn together about kind of um what's important to them 
I, I name that I'm interested in their experiences and that there is nothing off limits for them to bring into this space and that I'm really wanting to essentially center them and how they've made sense of it and caveating that by acknowledging that there's no right or wrong. It's just about how they've made sense of that experience. And I think primarily because of my own experiences, there may be there may be aspects of identities that I notice myself being more biased towards asking. So for example, faith is really important to me. So I'm always curious around, oh, does somebody either have faith or values that really help to shape them? And so that makes me feel bolder to ask that question because the worst that can happen is someone says no and you go, cool, next question. Um, and some people might feel really ambivalent or, or awkward about asking that question, whether it's because they're worried about the answer they might get or they don't feel like it's an aspect of their own identity that is salient. Um, but for me, it's about being brave and matching the bravery of the person who has come into the space. Another thing I, um, I, I do is to think about using like a cultural genogram to just really kind of map out who, who's in their family. So it makes me think about how often the assumption is it's mom, dad, and you know, as the key parents or carers. And actually my grandma looked after me in the first year of my life. Um, and so that kind of opens up this idea of, well, who else is important to you? Or, you know, pets as well. I mean, personally, I don't have any pets, but I do know that for some people, their pets are a real core part of their family. They're, they're, they're the trusted being in their family that they can go to if they're feeling super anxious, you know, they don't talk back. <laughs> so there's a real sense of actually, who, who's missing in this, you know? Or, or do you, who would you include? Um, and that could be present or people that you kind of hold those continuous bonds with who may have passed on, um, just to be able to kind of really flesh out um, what's important to you. But it's really about stories, getting people to think about how would you tell um, your life story? And I guess I also try to think about creative and fun ways because I work with children a lot to, to be able to kind of bring in those stories to find out about people's values and how that might be shaped. So for example, it might be thinking about, is there a song or a movie that you think really helps to embody that you go, yeah, that, that's me, that's, that's, that embodies my life. And that might be something that you feel you're missing as a result of some of the mental health difficulties, or it might be something that you really connect with and it offers you a language that sometimes it's really difficult to kind of explain things. You just know that felt sense. And when you see it in front of you, either through media or what have you, there's a sense of feeling really connected to that. Mm. So just explaining, yeah, that movie with Whoopi Goldberg in it, that just made me feel like, you know, that thing around breaking free. I'm like, tell me a bit about that movie. What struck, what struck, you know, those sort of things. So I think it's about bringing in that kind of curiosity and recognizing that, we have a language beyond kind of just naming our emotions. It's in our stories. Um, being brave and acknowledging that even there's no silly question. If you ask and it, it's a no, then it's okay, we pivot, we move. That that's that's all there is to it. Um, and that how all of these things weave into those stories around how we make sense of our mental health and our well-being, the parts that are stronger and the parts that maybe we find a bit more challenging to navigate. Yeah. I love that. Do you know, I've actually come across some of my favourite TV shows and films 
because some of my clients have really loved them, really connected with them. And I haven't seen them yet. So then I've gone away and said, well, I'm going to need to watch this in order to get what you're talking about. So there's a show on Netflix called Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Have you seen it? Is that the police? The cop one, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had a girl in front of me once just almost like in tears explaining how amazing all of these individual people were and how one of the things she loved about it the most was that everyone was so different but they were all like valued equally on the show she felt um and so that kind of thing was really really important to her so then like you said immediately you start thinking okay so these issues of like equality um, and how difference is valued that's something that's really important to you um and so maybe that started a conversation about well, how do you feel a little bit different? What do you feel like isn't being valued at, at, you know, in your friendship group or in your family or in your school, which brought out so much. And if I'd have just gone, oh, no, I haven't seen that show, sure. um, then we would have missed so much. Or if you just asked, what are your values? It'd be like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Kids can't answer that question most of the time, can they? Isn't it interesting, though? I was just reflecting on um, some of my favourite times when I'm teaching is when I'm not actually teaching and when I get to just sit and chat with the children and build relationship and I think it sounds true for psychology as well but like there are so many boxes we have to tick in our professions isn't there and so many targets to hit and forms to fill and it's so hard to push against that Mm. and not do those things sometimes or put them to an up to the side in order to just spend time because there's people who are telling us yeah but how you how do you quantify that how do you quantify that time you've just spent with a child it's like you don't get it I'm getting all the answers I'm gonna need for those things yeah sitting and chatting Mm. you know it looks like I'm not doing anything um you know I I think the other like in the last couple weeks of term I spent a couple of mornings just sat on a bench chatting to children in like my classroom garden. It looked like I wasn't working, but Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, I learned so much more about those children and what they were worried about come the summer and what they were worried about going into their next class because Mm -hmm. I'd taken the time to sit and talk to them. And I think, you know, we do that as humans as well, don't we? As like as adults, we kind of go, oh, I need to like organize that with that person or I need to get this job done. But actually the sitting and talking and taking time, that's where the quality of people's stories and personalities and values comes out. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's lots of papers, you know, that talk about the idea of doesn't matter if you're going to use CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy or whatever it is. Sometimes it's the therapeutic relationship that is the strongest predictor is kind of somebody's um, moving towards wellness. You know, you can have a fantastic therapist who knows everything encyclopedia knowledge, but you don't connect with. And it's, it reminds me of that, like when you have an, um, your parents and they tell you and they advise you and you're just like, oh God, I'm over that. And then your favorite auntie comes and she's fun and she says, it and you're like, I'm gonna do that straight away, right? <laughs> because you've got that relationship with her. You feel yeah. heard, or maybe she spends the time to really listen to you, etc. And that makes you open to yeah. be, yeah. Um, to, 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 to take that advice or to, to take on some of those suggestions. Yeah, it comes back to trust as well, doesn't it? And, and thinking that someone understands you enough that the advice that they're giving isn't just generic advice that they would give to everyone exactly. or that if they are going to give it to everyone that they think well you know th- this is important like I am you know if you're thinking about holistic we're thinking about things like sleep and diet and movement as well we are going to give very similar advice to everybody 
but we can appreciate why it's going to be harder for some people to do some of that than others. And then the way that you deliver the advice is different. Mm. And so the way that it gets heard is different. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, there's so many times where I know that the adolescents that I see particularly, I'm saying stuff their parents have probably said. Um, and I've had one set of parents, which I remember getting really like, but we've been telling them that. I'm like, yes, but you know, they're not going to listen to you. So yeah. let me say it. Right what was it that um sort of I guess formed this approach for you that kind of led you to be so passionate about that holistic anti-racism kind of space as in was there something in particular was that just always the kind of psychologist you knew you wanted to be um I guess it takes me back to when I was in A levels and trying to figure out what do I want to do I knew I didn't want to be a medical doctor because I'm, I'm, I can't touch people. I just, ugh, I can't. Um, I thought I wanted to be a forensic scientist off of watching CSI. And then I realized they're wearing those white hazmat suits. And I was like, that's not cute. I don't want to do that. So I really just noticed myself being drawn towards wanting to understand people um, and how people within different contexts are different. So it made me think about that real sense of um, in my community. So I'm of Ghanaian heritage. I wouldn't hear my mom talk about feeling sad. She would say she has a headache. She would say that she's, she, she would try to describe things very physically, um, but to label them as an, an emotion or, or, you know, those sort of things that just was, was not really the case. Um, and often it was very kind of spiritualized. So God will help me through this, or I don't need to worry about it. God will help me navigate it. And I just was really curious, like, how do psychologists then work with that? And I remember having, um, we had a talk from a, a teacher who was teaching us the, the A-level psychology, and they were telling us all the different professions. And they said to me that you could consider clinical psychology, but it's super competitive and there's hardly any black psychologists, so I wouldn't even bother. And that to me was a challenge. I was like, well, you're not gonna tell me no. <laughs> I'm just gonna, <laughs> if anything, that's gonna motivate me. But I know people who heard the same thing and were completely put off. So I worked hard. I managed to, by God's grace, get onto the course. And it was the first time that, if I really think about it, it's the first time I realized I was black. I've grown up in a multicultural community all, all of my life up until that point. And so it was never really a salient experience because everybody was different. But then going onto a course where I was the one of three black girls out of a hundred, it was just like, where, 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 where's everybody at? I noticed kind of how I didn't see myself in some of the theories that were being taught. Or I noticed how I'm like, oh, if my auntie walked into that therapy room, I don't think she'd open up about that. Or maybe she'd be misunderstood in this way. So it made me feel really curious around, well, how do people work with that? And I just challenged myself to really kind of speak up about that more. And that was super scary um, for, for a number of reasons, not knowing where it would land, not knowing if it would be interpreted as me having a chip on my shoulder or being the one who's always talking about race or yeah, for a number of different things. But what I held in the, the forefront of my mind was, in me speaking up about this, does this make it a little, does this create 
seeds of change where actually if my mum was to walk into that therapy room with the other therapists in the room that this might mean that they have a little bit more of a meaningful engagement with her mm. and so if it ends up me looking a little bit weird in the classroom for the sake of that happening I'd much rather center the possibilities rather than holding on to the fear of oh my gosh this is just awkward so I think that's what really kind of pushed me just seeing those spaces where I thought we could be doing more to help understand different communities that we work with. And then when I qualified, I noticed that those same things were there. It wasn't just about training. It was just in the wider profession too. Like I qualified and working in an, an organization where I am the only black clinical psychologist and there's about a hundred psychologists in, in the organization. So it's pretty hard to miss it. It's pretty hard to not notice, you know, your difference and be curious around, oh, well, I wonder how, how we then do work with differences. And noticing that sometimes it feels so awkward to talk about things that actually people feel silent. Um, and silence can mean a number of things. But I think the George Floyd incident really kind of brought it home and reminded me of why it's dangerous for us to not address this. It's, there's one thing about, okay, you know, we're complacent or we'll work towards it, but actually the harm that's caused as a result of not talking about those differences or thinking intentionally, that's when I was like, we need to do some work. Yeah. I heard um, someone say about um, after the kind of George Floyd stuff kind of sparked everything again, I heard someone say something like, why are we... I say someone, an older relative of mine. Um, why are we talking about this now? Like, why are we suddenly talking about it? And I said, I'm fairly sure there's lots of people who have been talking about it for a long time. This is the first time most people are listening. Yeah. And I, and I mean, you didn't hear me, but you know, I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? And, and you know, I hold my hands up to being one of those people. As in, you know, when it suddenly smacks you right in the face, you have to really listen and try and learn and and change your practice and and change how you are in the world but um that doesn't mean there haven't been people like yourself for a long time who have been trying to say it and fully acknowledging that actually yes there have been people who've been trying to say it but equally a lot of people who've been tired of saying it and just stopped saying it which inadvertently feeds this cycle of oh wait I never knew that because that was never mentioned. And, you know, it's kind of like the unspoken, hidden, invisible stories that are very much felt by some people more than others. Um, but I think that sadly, throughout history, most of the catalysts for change have been as a result of these really terrible, tragic incidents like, you know, um, Stephen Lawrence, you know, just like, you know, we have these big catalysts, but why do we need to wait for something like that before we start to think about mm. how we address this you know that like the three boys who missed the penalties and it's like oh my goodness wait people can be racist and put racist tweets no way but actually what had we seen all the way up onto that you know people making monkey noises people kind of um the news headlines being skewed to kind of either uh, unfavorably report stories around um, the, the athletes of color as opposed to white athletes, you know, or just thinking about the fact that there's a lack of visible leadership from people of color 
um, in there. So you've seen these little things, which are all actually different forms of discrimination and racism, but actually we become more tolerant of certain ones. So, oh, it's okay, we don't see as many um, in leadership, but that doesn't seem to be as held as equally harmful as somebody sending out a racist tweet. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I suppose I was just thinking about when when George Floyd was killed, it, it was during lockdown, wasn't it? And we were, yeah. we, I remember we were working from home at that point. And I, and I appreciate that in saying this, I know I didn't have to process anywhere near as much as an awful lot of people. Um, but thankfully it did hit me hard. I'm glad it hit me hard. I didn't want it, to, you know, I'd hate to think that something like that did not affect me. Um, and processing that on my own at home, not being with my team, not being able to have those conversations. Like we did, we did it online. It's not the same. Not being able to have some of those smaller conversations with my my colleagues who are black, because I know that people don't want to speak up when there are 30 people on a team's meeting um, and say how they're feeling necessarily and not feeling like I was able to support. And I think that what I was really aware of in that moment was how very, very sad and how very quickly tired I felt because of all of that emotion and then was just immediately hit by like, whoa, and I've only had to really deal with this on this scale for a very short amount of time. Right, that fatigue, yeah. Yeah, and 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 then feeling really, really sad about like, gosh, I don't even know how to begin making a difference. I don't even know how to begin to help people feel less sad about this how to make things better and and all of the everything I'm saying sounds just trite and rubbish and not big enough and I think that that becomes part of the problem as well of just but feeling paralyzed by it isn't a good enough excuse for them shutting it out Um, Mm. and I think that maybe that's what people do as well I don't know (laughs) I I fully agree it makes me think about if we were working with someone um, who's going who wants to process or to overcome trauma there's times when we might be talking about things that are so overwhelming, but what we would do in therapy is to ensure they have these grounding strategies, things that help to bring you back into that space where you can be able to feel safer. Um, That doesn't mean that we stop working on the trauma. It just means that we notice where we're at and what's going on and try to um, uh, recalibrate to ensure that we're looking after ourselves throughout that process so that we can withstand this long, long term. But yeah, that fatigue, um, that sense of even sometimes feeling guilty of why hadn't I noticed this before and all those different emotions are absolutely normal. But it's about what do we then do when we notice that? Do we check out? Do we keep going? What is our catalyst and motivation to change? particularly outside of those huge catalyst moments it's about creating those long-term plans that allow you to sustainably continue to make those shifts I always get struck whenever I do anti-racism training when I've had um, uh, white clinicians kind of think about that they have um, not very many people of color in their team or they don't work with very many people of color and I'm like, well, then you have the most perfect opportunity to influence because you're not doing it to me. This is about actually inspiring and connecting with other white communities. That's your sphere of influence. If you're only doing anti-racism work in the presence of people of color, then it's performative. And that makes very little difference. So actually what we need people to do 
is to be able to think about who do I have connections with so Sarah when you were talking about kind of that older relative etc like that's your sphere of influence that maybe another person of color may not have access to they won't necessarily be able to hear the stories and to understand um so it's thinking about what you can do to take it from moments to movements and in a sustainable way yeah have you noticed a change in conversations in your own organization over the last year I've noticed an increased awareness. I've noticed a voice around um, a desire for change. I've not always noticed that being translated into action. Yeah. In terms of people not doing anything about it or in terms of, um, I suppose, kind of people carrying on as they were? It's the carrying on as they were. It's the who, who takes the responsibility to bring this back into focus across all the, the different areas of our identity, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's about sexuality or faith or um, social class, whatever it might be, it's often those who hold those identities that are the ones who go, oh, sorry, can I just remind you that this is a thing, let's not wait for somebody else to be murdered before we then try and deal with it. It's so easy for it to fall off the agenda And I guess this is why it's important to find ways of incorporating it into daily practice. So it no longer, it reminds me of like when you're trying to teach, um, when I'm trying to teach my daughter how to count. First, it's an intentional, this is one, this is two, this is three. And then you realize there's so many opportunities around you to help learn to count. Let's count how many steps we could do. Let's count how many Skittles are in your pot bowl. Or let's count, I was gonna say count how many cornflakes, but I'm not built with that patience. So <laughs> just literally, you just start to notice, hold on, we could count here. Then she starts to do it naturally. So something that was never a skill she had, that was then something you have to be intentional and probably feels a bit intensive to do mm. to then something that's naturally woven into every day to the point where she's like, mommy, look, one, two, three, four. And I think anti-racism or anti-discriminatory practices is the exact same thing. It's learning how to build that into our everyday steps so that we can, um, yeah, incorporate it into the very fabric of our society. I think it's also, it's, it's really interesting because when we, look at counting in school it then goes beyond just being able to say one two three four and it's looking like do you understand that two is two objects we talk about the two-ness of two and and like and then thinking about okay and what does that look like and the depth of it and how can you apply it to other things and and I guess it's a similar sort of thing it's like actually you can go to the training and you can say what you think the right points are from it Mm -hmm. but actually can you then apply it do you really understand the depth of it could you tell somebody else about it like has it changed like and I think it's that kind of thing as well it's um it's beyond just being able to say one two three isn't it yeah absolutely that's when you know you fully embodied it right and the best way is when you're able to kind of teach someone that's when you're like I know this so that's why talking about it is so helpful it reminds you of what you know what you've learned and also that actually everybody's learning and unlearning so this is we do not have an example anywhere of this being perfect in the world. We don't. So I love to do workshops around what we call freedom dreaming. If you could imagine uh, an organization that is anti-racist, for example, what would that look like? And you realize everybody holds slightly different visions depending on ways in which they relate to that particular identity or what their own learning might be. But 
the freedom to be able to visualize and to create and to nurture and to bring that together and to say, actually, that's possible. We could do that tomorrow. It makes you just realize the possibilities, particularly in a framework where a lot of things in anti-racism, anti-discriminatory work feels like, don't do this, don't say that, don't. There's a lot of don't, don't, don't. To the point you're like, I don't even know what to do. I might as well stay silent because anything I say is gonna sound wrong. So actually, what can you do? What are the possibilities? What are the hopes? How can we nurture that? I think building is just as important as dismantling. Yeah. What you were just saying made me think as well, it, it probably depends quite a lot um, on what hurt people have experienced as well. And that a lot of the time when people say things like, oh, I didn't even know this kind of stuff was happening. or Oh, that's really shocking to me that that happened. There's an element of ignorance there, but there's also an element of just not having experienced anything that's hurtful in that particular way and not being able to fully appreciate that someone else has does that make sense so I suppose the different kind of hurts that different people are bringing will depend on what they want freedom from Mm. and freedom to look like but that can also be a freedom to understand or to be able to have spaces where you can be clumsy not clever which might be for example uh, an all-white support group where you're like okay we're trying to figure this out and we're going to get someone to or we're going to do some reading together what have you let's try and kind of have a conversation Um, whether it's thinking about engaging with literature and um, media that's already out there that's created by people who are happy to tell their stories as opposed to burdening those very few people around you and saying sorry I really want to learn can I just trouble you to share that really traumatic story with me right because we as much as the the intention around kind of wanting to learn to do different it's it can be very difficult to share those things over and over again um especially if you don't see any change as a result of that that's probably what's the most frustrating no one no one says to someone I really want to know how to work better with those who um, are bereaved can you tell me about that time you lost your child right like no one's gonna do that that's not acceptable so Mm. why do we do that with with race why do we just assume that people are okay to talk about their struggles and their experiences and a lot of people are and how wonderful that they are but we shouldn't put that on people to talk about the things that they've been through unless they've kind of said I'm happy to talk about it Mm, I agree and it's also about not just centering people of color it's also thinking about ways of recognizing that we all hold culture um, and that sometimes perhaps it feels might it might feel more difficult to properly acknowledge that when it feels like the norm. It's like, oh, well, I don't know if I've got any special things about my culture because everybody does that, right? But actually, not everybody does. And I guess that was that really came to my mind when I was doing some tree of life training, and my um, white colleague and we were doing the the roots and the grounds of the tree of life so basically just kind of exploring what's your day-to-day look like what is your kind of your cultural heritage and your roots and she felt really stuck in kind of being able to think about what her culture was um until I said well what if you were explaining this to an alien who hadn't who didn't know anything about humans etc and then all of a sudden it was like oh okay well this is what I do this is what I do this is what I do because something is so entrenched in the norm we don't even question it so for example when we learn about diversity we learn about it as though we're only studying other cultures 
we don't think about actually whiteness and how that shows up you know all the books are like how to work with different people so does that mean that everyone else is different and then that white people aren't different and yes of course everyone holds difference um and that intersectionality around our different identities whether you're a woman whether you're heterosexual whether you're whatever it is you've got various levels layers of differences that all needs examining um because they all hold varying degrees of kind of power and privilege in different contexts so yeah it was just about kind of drawing that focus on it doesn't have to just be learning about oh let me ask that person the color about their experience it's about reflecting on what has my culture taught me about difference so for example somebody saying I was taught that it was rude to see color, to, to know someone's color, that you have to kind of be colorblind and that's more respectful. It wasn't taught in a way of oh, being racist. It was taught in a way of to, to show respect, to not kind of highlight those differences. And what does that then mean for me about how I feel when someone talks about differences? Am I more likely to, for example, to, if my child says, oh, mommy, she's got brown skin oh no 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 we don't say that or do you go yes she has brown skin and you have duh, duh, you know what whatever it might be how do we use that to help create richer conversations yeah I think it's um it's been one of the real privileges of us doing this podcast is getting to hear different people's stories and how different people deal with mental health because actually you kind of assume that how you deal with it or how you experience it is the the norm right um and actually being able to go okay that might be how that might be my story or how I deal with stress or how I deal with mental health but actually somebody else might deal with that in a different way and we can we you need to know yourself and how you deal with something and your story well I think in order to um mm-hmm. be able to have those conversations and to hear from other people and to understand that just because someone reacts differently doesn't mean they're reacting wrong but also um, if you think you're the default mm. in some way um then it's difficult to know how to explain your experiences because if you assume that other people see the world in the same way that you do there's a lot that you think you don't have to have a conversation about and it's not until you yeah. point out something to discuss something that you think everybody does or everybody sees or everybody thinks or everybody feels and someone else goes oh that's really interesting because I don't do that and you go oh okay here is the root of so much misunderstanding here because we haven't talked about something that seems so simple and so basic but actually we are all different and understanding those little differences as well and how we talk about them does have a major impact on how we see bigger differences doesn't it we need to value all kinds of difference yeah it makes me think about the, the 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 stress bucket, you know, analogy and how we were just saying before about this idea of we assume that everyone knows it, and yeah, we've all heard this a million times. And then actually, you then talk to somebody who has no idea around that, and you're like, oh, I just assumed it was common knowledge. But actually, maybe someone who's trained in a different country has learned that framework in a different way. Mm. Um, and so having that conversation, what's the worst that has happened? That can happen. You know, somebody would just say, yeah, I've heard that before. Then it's like, great. So we're aligned. But maybe we hold different understandings of it. Maybe we apply it in a different way. Maybe we introduce it in a different way if it's a kid. Perhaps we get out an actual bucket and we get water and we might poke holes in it, whatever it might be. It's just about being curious. I'm, I'm always struck when someone feels they have 
nothing to, to say because they assume it's all been said, but actually your perspective may be completely different. You've just done a lovely segue into our next section then, Nancy. Can you tell us, Nancy's very familiar with the stress bucket analogy. Um, so what are some of the things that fill up your stress bucket? I think particularly um, relating to, to this work, it is the, it's that fatigue um, when you don't really see the differences happening, perhaps at a pace that I'd like to see it happening or when you um, encounter kind of barriers. So it just kind of adds to the stress where you're still trying to navigate your everyday role. You're still trying to live life. You're still trying to maintain um, relationships, but then you have this real desire to want to kind of facilitate change. And it can just feel sometimes like you're going up against the brick wall. So that definitely builds up stress. Um, and the constant trying to be brave. Oh my gosh, it's so exhausting. And if I could just be like, Ugh, I don't care, but because I do care, I care about us trying to get this to, to move together to learn. And I appreciate that it's a difficult conversation. It is exhausting trying to hold in mind so many people and trying to minimize harm and not recreate harm um, in other ways. Um, so those are the things that kind of fill up my stress bucket. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that though you say one of the things that stress fills up my stress bucket is caring so much mm. because like you say earlier when you said I don't want to say things in case people think I've got a chip on my shoulder and I know mm. sometimes you know you can have I've seen all sorts of awful things said that I won't repeat now about people just continuing to fight the fight I guess and what it is is caring an awful lot and things being incredibly important spilling out in all sorts of ways because it's not taken seriously earlier on and that's what it is isn't it you say is this this I care I care a lot and I want people to care more yeah and it's caring what that you kind of hold in mind the potential dangers and wanting to offset that so you are it's like kind of trying to tell your child don't run with scissors don't run with scissors because you can imagine exactly what would happen if they run with scissors and they're like oh, it's not happened it rarely happens and then the day happens you're like oh my gosh did I do enough did I talk about it enough did I mention it enough and that's a huge responsibility to to, to take on but I think for me because legacy is so important and I think about my daughter who'd be growing up in this world or I think about the clients who will come into the therapy room who are having to navigate um, therapy spaces that are supposed to be brave spaces, supposed to be healing spaces, but may be exposed to unintentional harm. Those are the things that make me go, how can I just take this forward? How do I do it in a way that's sustainable, but acknowledge that this is stressful work? Yeah. So when do you notice your bucket filling up? I think other people notice it before I notice it. it. Yeah, I'm terrible at asking for help. So I would probably only notice it at the time when it's got too much and the bucket's overflowing. And that for me is grinding my teeth at night, um, feeling like um, I have to get it perfect, which I don't have to at all. Uh, holding myself to like an impossible standard and not being happy with even what I've with what I've even done um, and so then being more critical towards myself and my work and finding it hard to kind of accept even positive feedback on it and just counting it so um, just that physical wear and tear with the tiredness um, 
also being disconnected to people. I love being connected to people. So when I start to notice myself just feeling less empathic or less patient, that's when I'm like, nah, you need to take a break. <laughs> yeah. What do other people notice then before you do? The snappiness. <laughs> <laughs> the snappiness, the impatience, the, um, they might notice, yeah, they might notice a lot less compassion even though what might be driving me is a real sense of, I want to be compassionate. I want to be holding other people in mind. It's funny how that can come across as very, is it uncompassionate? The opposite of compassionate, but <laughs> um, if you're not mindful of it, you know, and that's again about being careful of how do you don't, how do you not recreate harm? The same harm that you're trying to fight to yeah. stop happening. And then you inadvertently wield power in a way that actually no, I don't think anyone is above the possibility of creating harm whether or not you belong to a marginalized group etc we all have spheres than others relative to who we're around um or uh, who we're working with but yeah being very mindful of that yeah on a small scale I think what you just said about what's driving me is compassion, but the way I'm acting is really incompassionate. Um, I've got a perfect example from this weekend when my husband hasn't been very well and I've desperately wanted to do anything I can to make him feel better. Um, but the things that I have tried to do haven't been helpful. They haven't been what he needs. I can't actually do anything to help at the moment. He just needs to rest it out. Um, so I've almost had moments where it's been spilling over to like why won't you let me help you why won't you eat the nice food that I've cooked for you it's like because I've got a stomach bug and I feel dreadful and it's like I'm trying desperately to make you feel better but the things that I'm trying to force on you are the only things that I feel capable of giving right now are not what you need and I don't feel able to stop and really think from your perspective and get outside of mine um yeah and we do that in much bigger ways sometimes mm. I love that that example. It's just so accessible. And so, yeah, you know, you can have the best of intentions and actually maybe that person's not ready to receive it in that way at that time. Um, that doesn't mean that you stop caring. It just means you try to adapt. And it might be, do you want to cuddle instead? That yeah. will do. That, that'll be fine. Just meet me where I'm at kind of thing. Um, but enough to know for that person to know you're still there. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you stop, like, I will offer him food tomorrow. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go, but you didn't want food yesterday, so I'm never going to give you food ever again. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about when other people notice versus when you notice and things like that, um, at what point do you try and do something about your bucket filling up? So when I become aware of those signs that indicate that it's becoming overwhelming, um, that's when I have to pause, reflect, and to pivot in my style of social justice work. So um, at what point do I notice it? It's, it's, yeah, when I have all of those signs, um, but what do I then do? I then go, okay, at this moment, I'm really driven by not wanting to maintain a society or be part of a system that maintains a society that creates harm for people what's another way I can do this without being burnt out or losing that compassion or losing the values that are important to me? And that's where this model by Deepa Iyer, which is like a social change ecosystem, and it's got like 10 different ways 
that we can um, engage in social justice work. So there's 10 different roles that we can take on. And often the role I typically take on is the disruptor. I encourage myself to be brave enough to speak up about things, to ask those difficult questions. Um, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be the one on the front line holding a, a, a placard saying end, anti, end racism, et cetera, but in meetings, for example, or through whatever spheres of influence, but that is also really exhausting. So what I might do is pivot to a different role. So for example, one of the roles that she has is about being a, um, a weaver somebody who can see the lines of connectivity, maybe think about different ways that you can pull networks together. And that still gives me a sense of you're doing something because there's a real fear of, oh my gosh, if I stop, is it gonna happen? Mm. So what about actually, if I just change the resources that I'm using or change the strategies that I'm using? So I'm not exercising that exact same muscle or strategy. Instead, I'm doing something that feels a lot less intensive or something that shares the burden, but I'm still moving forward in the work. So um, I notice, for example, I'm more likely to be like, I know someone who's a great speaker in that or signposting somebody to a resource or it might be about um, kind of sharing those, um, those resources or connections or trying to help somebody else be the disruptor by offering them the platform in the space. So that helps me to really, yeah, it helps to make sure that the bucket's not overflowing. Um, as a hole in that bucket to be able for, for the water to kind of um, pour out or the stress to pour out. It's like seeing yourself as a heptathlete mm. rather than a like than just a hundred meter sprinter or something. Mm. Yeah, like saying sometimes I need to switch events. There's lots yeah. of different things that I and there's lots of different things that I can be good at as well. I think that's that's must be tough as well that when you feel like you found a role that really suits you even like 95% of the time to then put that down for 5%. Mm. And I think that that definitely rings true. If I frame a role as less effective or less impactful, but when you think about in her model, she calls it an ecosystem because actually everything is needed to help keep it in balance. Yeah. If you take away that disruptor and you just have somebody who's going to be like, oh, I know this person and then nobody speaks out, you're going to notice that there's very little shift that could happen. So it's the idea that all roles are valued and are mm. equal. I guess it really came to my mind when um, I was still on maternity leave when George Floyd was murdered and there's also COVID. So I wouldn't have felt comfortable to have gone to the front line and to protest. Does that mean that I'm less passionate? No. Does that mean that um, I'm not interested in this work? No, it means I just tried to do what I could in my spheres of influence in a way that I found more, uh, yeah, just meeting me where I'm at and with the resources I have and what I'm willing to give. So, but yeah, and back that word with the, <laughs> the athlete that does all of the stuff. Yeah, for sure. I was just sitting here for probably a good 30 seconds while you were talking, thinking of that analogy, but just going, oh, what are they called? <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of things help to empty your bucket? It's switching those roles because then I notice it's, it's almost like resting one muscle. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a little bit more of um, a break or give yourself permission to step back in a different way while still feeling like you're moving forward in your values. It um, is taking time out to engage in social justice work, but from a different angle, including joy, celebrating, like, hey, if I'm gonna learn about a new culture through their food, I'm happy to do that. It does not have to be about stories around pain and suffering. It could equally be about celebrating brilliance and, and innovation and, you know, um, just being curious around that. It could be also, it's also important for me to, um, to pray and just to kind of stay aligned to what I find nourishing, which is a sense that there's a higher purpose, that I don't have to do everything, that everything will kind of work together eventually and I just need to do my part it just relieves me of the responsibility of feeling like I need to hold everything and actually no it's not all about me trying to fix it it's me as a part of a system and just doing what I can and that that that's okay um good food oh I said that twice so that must be really important to me um but yeah really really good food um and nature connecting with nature like I live in the like in a London, so you don't get much nature, but you do. You can seek out like those parks. My, my daughter's name is Eden, and that's because it reminds me of the real sense of un. Is the word unadulted? I don't know, but just basically the sense of this untouched, unspoiled nature that is just like perfection on earth. And um, although I'm terrified of animals that just sense of being one with nature like you could walk through you could just the being able to listen to the leaves or to hear the wind to be able to kind of feel a sense that there's something bigger than you like I went to um northern Italy and it's the first time I've seen mountains in front of me and I was like I am tiny compared to this big old thing and it just really makes you feel like I don't know it, there's this moment of awe um, and wonder and it just feels so it allows you to feel a bit freed of all those little problems that are built up one just just let go for a moment and just be like wow there's this whole world around you to engage with to link into to be renewed by to be curious about um so yeah definitely nature as well yeah I think those big awe-inspiring moments as well help with that like you're saying it, it can feel like we have this unreasonable weight of responsibility on us sometimes to I don't know, be everything for everyone um mm. and the, the things that just need to put you in your place um in a good way mm. um so not everything is about you not everything needs you um and and things are so big and some things can't even be touched by you mm. and, don't, and don't have to be mm. just didn't just enjoy and I think as well, when you spend a lot of time fighting and or even just for you guys talking with people who have been through some horrible things, there's a darkness that can feel like that's what the world is like. Yeah. Whereas oh, actually yeah. to go and be able to just get that perspective of no, there is beauty in the world. Yeah. There is goodness in the world. And I think that's such an important balance to have and to be able to 
um, to see that and to find those, just those, like you said, those moments of joy and curiosity and awe. And um, yeah, I can totally, I can totally relate to that. Yeah, that was so, so beautifully said. Just that sense of, you're right, we hear a lot of dark stories and, but also we can also see people work towards kind of more hope and, and change. That doesn't always happen. But when it does, it's equally as meaningful and rich. But yeah, things that really help you to kind of be like, there's there's joy in the world. There is, you know, there's good moments. And that's why I guess it's always at the end of therapy sessions, I love to be able to share with clients what I've learned about them. And since what one thing that they've impacted me um, on what I'm going to kind of take away just as a way of being like, you know what, even if they haven't recognized that strength that I was really struck by X, Y, Z. And I think it's a great way of being able to kind of name out loud the hope or the lighthouse that you get to see in terms of that, that, that spark of light and how they can carry that forward. Or if not, just something I know I will appreciate about them. Oh, we should do that at the end of all our podcasts. Oh my goodness, we should. Sarah, what have you learned about Nancy? What are you going to take away from this? Sure, I have felt very um, reassured, I think, that um, working on my sphere of influence is is good enough does that does that make sense like that actually it, I think it's it's easy to feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm not you know not trying hard enough to change things and actually mm. if I'm working on my sphere of influence that has been really pivotal for me actually so thank you mm. Becca I am definitely going to look at those uh, 10 different roles because I I feel like if you work in mental health probably just in the NHS in general um you're always if you're fighting for things to be better for the people that you serve then there is a huge social justice element there um because our systems are not set up to there's a lot of problems with them aren't there <laughs> a lot of problems that feel like again very big fights and it doesn't feel like you always see much change or like you're having much influence and I think that having a look at those and seeing what role do I generally try and take on? What are some of the other ones that I might be able to take on to give myself a break from the more draining ones, but still be doing some really important work rather than burning out. Um, and then thinking about the different areas of social justice that I might be missing in the fight I'm already fighting and bringing more of that in. Um, again, that sounds like more work to do, but I feel like I have a better framework for doing it with that. So thank you. You're welcome. And actually, um, I'm in the midst of just creating a space to invite any psychologist or therapist in um, who's interested in that work to just to basically map out what does this look like in our role? And I guess having breakout rooms where people can kind of talk about when, if I'm a weaver, this is what I notice is really helpful, or this is the way we've embodied this, or these are the different professions that we weave alongside of that would be really helpful in moving social justice work forward so that we can try and develop collectively, because actually that's the most powerful thing around social justice work, that collective movement, um, develop a collective document of these ideas that can just be, whether it's the British Psychological Society or whether it's training courses saying, here are some ideas from some psychologists who wanted to think about this framework to offer some real practical solutions and how you can take this forward because everything can feel very theoretical or it can feel very tricky but 
why not come together and freedom dream so I'm definitely inviting you to that yeah that sounds amazing I am there (laughs) I just got all excited (laughs) (laughs) right well thank you so much Nancy we really appreciate you joining us oh I appreciate you guys like you know reminding me of um what empties my bucket and just good rich conversation really appreciate where can people find you and your work online uh so my instagram is the art of being underscore well i think it's called underscore well somebody stole the art of being well um <laughs> but yeah it's a basically it's a page which just helps to think about anti-racism in therapy spaces um and so i guess that's beneficial for people who are just who are therapists or who work with people with marginalized identities um or who are interested in connecting with therapists who hold that as an important value so yeah feel free to connect to that over instagram and linkedin dr nancy and sia as well yeah let's weave together cool. <laughs> uh, we will put those uh links in the show notes as well appreciate it so everyone can find you but yeah thank you so much for joining us nancy i've really enjoyed this conversation um it is currently nearly nine o'clock at night and anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows that this is definitely my bedtime but that yeah. any time we have evening podcast recordings I am just absolutely buzzing and I'm going to need to have a good hour to like chill out before I can go to bed now but it's brilliant um yeah I'm definitely an extrovert but it's also just yeah power of really good conversation so thank you so much oh lovely meeting you bye and thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next month with our next guest bye Thank you for listening to A Drop in the Bucket. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Drop in the Bucket Pod or Twitter at Drop Bucket Pod. Alternatively, you could email us on Drop in the Bucket Pod at gmail.com. It would be great to hear from some of you about what fills and empties your bucket or any questions that you might have for us or our future guests. We hope you'll tune in next week. <laughs>